Hello, it's Tom Gamboa, and welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. And hello, Royals fans. You have found the place for Royals baseball on Clubhouse Conversation, where we talk to all your favorite current and former Royals players and coaches. It's Davo, and yes, during the season, we talk to a current Royal anywhere from rookie ball on up to the major leagues. And every single week, all year round, here on Clubhouse Conversation, we talk to a former Royal. Doesn't matter if it was 1969 or 73 or 86 or 2003. You pick a year, and if they appeared in a game or coached at the big league level for the Royals, you will hear from them here on Clubhouse Conversation. And today, I'm excited to bring you Tom Gamboa who coached for the Royals from 2001 to 2003, a man who has more than 40 years in professional baseball and just an abundance of really cool stories. Tom Gamboa played some pro ball while also managing in the Canadian League back in the day, then got into scouting with the Baltimore Orioles, worked for the MLB Scouting Bureau. He's managed at the minor league level for many teams, including the Brewers and the Angels and on and on. And then, of course, major league level was a third base coach for the Cubbies and the first base coach for the Royals. Notice how I don't mention him being the victim of the attack in Chicago yet, because unfortunately that is something Gamboa is remembered for when the father and son combo attacked him during a game September 19th of 2002 in Chicago. We will talk about that. We'll get very frank about that, but that's not how Gamboa should be remembered. It's a shame that that's something that has to be brought up and something that has to be talked about. You, of course, have to ask those questions, and that's part of the story, and we'll get to that, but lots of other great baseball stories with Tom to share with you as well. He currently manages for the Mets in the New York Penn League for the Brooklyn Cyclones, and their season gets going here in just a few weeks. But Tom joins us from Florida, currently at Extended Spring Training for the Mets on Clubhouse Conversation. First of all, thanks for your time, and how's everything going with you? Uh, well, it's actually going pretty good nowadays, but uh, I hesitate because, unfortunately, I had a had a concussion that took me out of commission for virtually the whole month of May. So, I'm, I'm, needless to say, I'm glad that May is over with. Oh, <laughs> but no. I'm, I'm feeling I'm feeling good now. Yeah, I was. Uh, you know, we have what's called extended spring training. Young players that are not ready for full season teams, and uh, consequently, we have. We have them broken up into three clubs here in Florida and in the batting cage feeding the machine while guys were hitting. Somehow a ball ricocheted off something behind me uh, and hit me in the back of the head and uh, kind of knocked me for a loop. But uh, like I said, I had a bad month, but now we're into June and everything's good. Yeah, everything is back on again. That's good. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. But uh, you know, also, yeah. I want to give you a belated congrats. Obviously, last year you were hired by the Mets and, and spent last year managing the Brooklyn Cyclones. You'll be back there here in just a few weeks. You know, how excited are, for, are you to get back to uh, Brooklyn to start the season again? For the rookie league level, it's it's quite a facility. It's it's owned and operated by the Mets, and Fred Wilpon, the owner of our big league club, owns the franchise and. And uh, it's interesting to see that the Brooklyn Dodger fans of years and years ago are still around because they uh, they flocked to the park. We averaged uh, almost 7,000 people uh, per night for our 38 home dates last year, and it's a state-of-the-art 
sunken diamond facility with an astroturf, and it's right on the grounds of the famous Coney Island amusement park. So, yeah, that's yeah. a pretty good setup for the New York Penn League, right? Yeah, well, it's yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, they, I guess, since their inception in 2001, they've led the league by far in attendance every year, and uh, so the novelty certainly hasn't worn off. And uh, to the Mets' credit, they've put a competitive team in there. They've they've never in their existence of 14 years, they've never had a team that didn't finish at least 500 or better. So, um, you know, so they, they they put a good club in there for the people to see, and it was it was fun. It was. It was. Uh, I had a. I had a. I wasn't looking. To tell you the truth, Dave, I wasn't looking to come back. I would. I had resigned myself after 40 years that to uh, transfer my passion. I didn't. I didn't realize till the first day I put my uniform on that the passion was back for baseball, and I had a good time. So, as you say, I'm back doing it again this year. Yeah, that's great. Well, you're also obviously a former scout uh, back in the day, and then for the MLB scouting bureau for the Baltimore and all that good stuff, and amongst others, and you know the MLB draft is next week, and you'll have some of those guys that play with you later this summer. Have you been involved at all with scouting for the Mets? No, no. Uh, I, I my first first ten years of my career was was spent in, as you alluded, I was in scouting. Um, you know, some people really enjoy that part of it, and uh, I certainly respect it and know how hard those guys work, having done it myself. But I knew my forte and interest lied in development and being on the field. So since 86, which was my uh, last year in scouting with the Tigers, uh, for the last 30, 29 years I have had no involvement at all. As, as, as fans, if they don't know, Scouting and player development are completely two separate departments in virtually all 30 organizations. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So now we're going to go back and start from your youth here in a second, but uh, I had to throw one question, too. You know, obviously you spent a few years here in KC. Uh, how exciting is it for you to, to see the Royals competing again in 2015 and then seeing that World Series run last year? Oh, my gosh. I, I was uh, – I, I can say it because they're in the other league – I don't think I could openly admit it, even though I felt it in my heart if I was with an American League team. But being in the National League, uh, I, along with, I think, the whole country, was got caught up and was very excited about what the Royals did. And, and on a personal note, in my tenure at Kansas City, 0-1, and 3, they, watching them play reminded me exactly of what the Minnesota Twins were back in, in those years. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I mean, when Jock Jones and Torrey Hunter, because of their aggressive style on the bases and their never-give-up attitude, and, you know, I hate to say it, but you almost, from the other dugout in Kansas City, felt an uneasiness anytime we played them, even when we had the lead. And last year, as a fan, watching the Royals, uh, and it's a credit to Ned Yost and his coaching staff, that's what they cultivated in Kansas City. And, and much like the Minnesota uh, that won the Central Division all those years I was at Kansas City and brought that, that youthful enthusiasm, win-at-all-costs, never-say-die attitude to the big leagues. And I think that's a big part of why not only the fans in Kansas City, but people around the country started rooting for what had been a perennial losing team to, to take it all the way, and gosh, they came within one game of doing it. You know? yeah. So my hats, my hats off to the whole organization. 
Yeah, and you mentioned the Twins back then. I'm sure you remember going up there in the House of Horrors up there, all the bouncing ball singles. The Twins all found some, you know, pardon my French, but it seemed like BS way to beat the <laughs> to beat the Royals back in the day, finding holes, yeah, they, broken bats. <laughs> they certainly did, and 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 as you saw, Dave, it just continues to carry over. And certainly, you know, seeing the Royals at the top or tied for the top at the standings this year is proof. Uh, two months into the season, that it, last year was no fluke. That 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 it's it's a reality. Just as the Minnesota Twins, they they expect to win now. They're not they're not hoping to win, and they're expecting it to take it one game further than they did a year ago. And and they got a you know, they got a young nucleus of guys. So for the fan base in Kansas City, it looks like for the next few years to come that they're going to be uh, a lot of exciting days in the KC market. Absolutely. We're talking to Tom Gamboa. So we'll come back and talk more about your Royals days, obviously. But but let's go back and uh, and kind of begin, uh, you know, with your youth. So you're from the L.A. area originally. You played baseball at Cal Santa Barbara. You were a two-time all-conference player there. So, I mean, growing up, who was your team and was baseball pretty much just it? Was that just your number one love growing up? Yeah, well, I was. Uh, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley and have lived my whole life in California. And... Uh, yeah, my my mom remarried. I didn't know anything about sports until I was ten. When my my mom remarried, and my stepdad taught me to play baseball, and I I, I can gosh, even though I'm sixty seven, I can remember like it was yesterday. My 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 stepdad, who I refer is my dad to me, he, he laughed and he said, "Well, you may not be good enough." And I said, "Well, whether I am or not, I I'm just so passionate about this. I just know I'll be doing it my whole life, whether it's coaching or whatever." So. I felt very fortunate at 10, uh, especially having raised five kids and knowing that we're in a society today where a lot of kids don't seem to figure it out even in their 20s, uh, what what direction they want to go in. I was lucky enough at 10 to know what I was going to do. And uh, although I played a little basketball in high school, I dropped everything but baseball and just put all my eggs in one basket. So I was very focused from an early age. Well, and, uh, and you know, at Cal Santa Barbara, you, I'm assuming you were primarily a center fielder there because I saw you played center field later on in the Canadian League. Is that pretty much true? Right. Yeah, I played. I played center as well as a kid in in American Legion and Connie Mack, and even in high school, I had played a lot of first base. Being left-handed, you're limited to either first base or the outfield. So I had played enough first base that at Santa Barbara, I was a center fielder. But uh, I think it was in my senior year when our first baseman got hurt. Uh, you know, I volunteered to play this, and then I got a great break up there in the Canadian League when the manager got fired. Uh, I actually became a playing manager, hmm. and would and would call timeout and come in from center field to make my pitching change. Had <laughs> <laughs> all kinds of signs to guys in the bullpen, and so I was fortunate to get managing experience at a very young age, which I which I just had a feeling that that was going to be my forte was to be in development, in coaching, and managing. Guys. That's really cool. Yeah, that was 1971 to 1972 in the Canadian Baseball League, like you said. Now, what was that league like? Did you play? I mean, were there any MLB players on your team or playing against you? My roommate and buddy, when I was a junior, was a freshman named Chris Fire. Yeah. And Chris had Chris had no interest at all in the academics, so he dropped out of Santa <laughs> Barbara after his freshman year in '69. Yeah, and 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 uh, went through the draft and. You know, went right to Double A with the Giants, and after just one year of minor league baseball, boom, he was in the big leagues. But, but 
in between college and signing with the Giants, he played a year on the same club that I was on in uh, Stratford, Ontario, and it told me, you know, what it, what it, you know, that it was a good league. And uh, um, gosh, I remember my first game that I played up there. It's the first time in my entire life that I ever struck out three times in one game. Lamanchek was a guy about six five, two thirty five that threw real hard, and I. I, I, I think I was a realist. I think I realized very early on, unlike a lot of players, that although you know I made all star teams in high school and in college of Division One and had a full scholarship, thank God, that once I saw the cream kind of rise to the top, I, I knew that my aspirations of being a big league player were not going to happen. So. <laughs> That's great. So then after that, so yeah, you start scouting for Baltimore, 1973 to 75. Then you spend uh, a couple years scouting for the MLB Scouting Bureau, which uh, you know Art Stewart, you know, has a book out that I read and read more about that recently. It's kind of interesting to read about the Scouting Bureau. But I mean, kind of describe what that experience was like for you. Uh, you know, working I guess for at both stops, both for Baltimore and the Scouting Bureau, and then uh, you know what territories did you have back then, and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, well, scouting, you know, for people that, that, that want to know where it all, that's the grassroots of baseball. I mean, the players have to come from somewhere, and my territory was from Fresno, which is mid-state California, to the Oregon border, and then the seven northwestern states. Wow. And when I first started scouting, and there was no bureau, I would go to all of those seven states, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, uh, Montana, Utah, and hire what is uh, you don't hear it anymore, but there used to be a term "bird dogs" in baseball, where you would you would hire somebody and maybe just give them five hundred dollars for expenses, and then they would get paid on a commission basis if they recommended somebody that the scout, in fact, ended up signing. Hmm. Uh, when you're fighting the draft, which is always the first week of June, I would fly because time was of the essence. But once the June draft was over. Uh, as scouts are still doing today, I would get in my car and literally drive through all seven of those states and through newspaper reporters, high school coaches, American Legion coaches, and bird dogs. You would pick up the names of the one, two, three, or five guys in a given area or state through Connie Mack and Legion and Senior Babe Ruth. You got an opportunity to watch them play, maybe get to know them and their parents and find out what made them tick. And then, then you, you then you'd have a good handle on it going back to actually see them in the spring, and you know although, you know just like as I've mentioned, I knew coaching was my forte. I'm an extroverted person. I like to have my hands on, but the one thing that was fun in scouting was getting in to see a guy that you knew was going to be a star, and you're watching him at 18 years of age, seeing him in high school. So from there, you moved on to the uh, Milwaukee Brewers organization, then after scouting, and you managed them at various stops through 85. Now, you were manager of the year with single-A Beloit in 84, and I wanted to ask you about the Appy League. So 1983... the Paintsville Brewers, you won the championship there. Now, obviously, they don't have a team anymore. First of all, where the heck is Paintsville? And second of all, what was that summer like? Yeah, well, first off, you've done your homework on, <laughs> on me. Jeez, I didn't think anybody would remember that but my own family. But yeah, <laughs> Paintsville had a reputation for being the smallest, I was told, for being the smallest town in the history of professional baseball. Yeah. And the, the Yankees went there 
prior to the Brewers, and and uh, that was my first year managing. And I was I was very fortunate that the Brewers had one of their best drafts in history that year. The the bad thing about it for the players is there was literally nothing, not even a liquor store. <laughs> or a drugstore open after the games for the players to get anything to eat. And if I remember right, we finally convinced the Pizza Hut to stay open on the home games because they knew that they would get a ton of business because the players were hungry after the games. You know, But Paintsville was a stone's throw from Butcher Holler, and, and that was a club that in one draft the Brewers got Dan Fleszak who had a very lengthy career and now is uh, one of the guys on the MLB channel at night uh, as, a, as a commentator. And uh, Glenn Braggs, who won yeah. the Triple Crown his first year in pro ball and had a lengthy career primarily with Cincinnati. And Chris Basio, who later in his career threw a no-hitter for uh, the Seattle Mariners. Those, those were uh, several other guys made the big leagues briefly, but th- those three ended up you know, really having stellar careers as major league players down the road. What was that stadium so, like? It had to have been tiny, right? Well, it was it was funny, Dave, because in those days you 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 had to you had to get out a watch. You had a, a five minute report you were supposed to call into the organization. We're going back to eighty three before there were fax machines and you know, and so I would guess like a hundred or two hundred in my my 12-year-old son in the background would say, Dad, there was 128, I counted them. <laughs> so it was, and our field, our field was a mediocre high school field and, uh, and built in the wrong direction where it faced the sun. <laughs> and, and the grounds crew hung a tarp between two light poles that they rotated by hand to follow the sun <laughs> oh my so that we were able to play the game uninterrupted. I mean, that's how... Uh, I mean, this is, these are stories that should be in a baseball book. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> wow, Paintsville. There you go. Well, that's that's pretty cool. So, I mean, Milwaukee. After those days, lost success there. You went on to the Tigers organization, and then uh, I wanted to talk about your Padres days from '91 to '94. I know you got to know uh, you know Tony Gwynn pretty well. What, what kind of man was he? Oh my gosh, the, the everything and more that whatever anybody has heard. Because when I got hired by the Padres. Although I lived in California, I had never been to Yuma. And that's where they trained at that point in time. And so I went to the park at like 6.30 in the morning. I mean, the meeting, the staff meeting wasn't going to be till like 8.30 or 9 o'clock. I just went right to the ballpark and I got to the park first day of spring training before 7 a.m. And Tony Gwynn was already in the batting cage with Merv Bretman working on hitting balls off a tee. And I and this was in the midst of when he was winning eight batting titles in a row. And I remember sitting in the parking lot, which you could see the cage right next to it, thinking, oh, my God, what what a living example this guy is. Yeah. <laughs> the best hitter in the National League. And on day one, he's here before before anybody but the grounds crew people already working on his stroke. Just, just a... I couldn't say enough good things about Tony Gwynn, and it's it's a it's a shame and a loss for all of us that he passed away so young. Yeah, that was that was tough. Um, then, so after your times with the Padres, so five years in the Cubs organization, including two as the third base coach there in Chicago. So, what was it like going to? I, I have to assume it was just so much fun going to Wrigley every day for work, right? 
Oh, that was that was quite an experience. Yes, my my dad was from Chicago. I had never been there, and you know he told me how great it would be. And uh, you know when you mention Chicago, the first thing that pops into my mind is that when I got hired in the winter as the third base coach with well, since you didn't play in the big leagues and haven't coached yet, you think you can handle the pressure in a major market of coaching third? And I actually had to laugh <laughs> because I managed ten years of winter ball. And as I told the reporter, any, every report, everybody in baseball, every player, manager, umpire, anybody associated with it should spend one week in either Dominican, Puerto Rico, Venezuela, or Mexico in the winter. To, and if they haven't done that, just turn on one of these World Cup soccer games. <laughs> and that was the atmosphere at every single Winter League baseball game. When they come to the game, they have bets on it. They, they don't care if you won... 10, 12 in a row, they want you to win the night that they're there. So, but it, but Chicago was everything that people think it to be. And it was, and as a player or a coach, it was great to play at 120 every day, virtually every day, and live a normal life where you could go out and enjoy the city in the evening and all the great restaurants. And, uh, you because know, basically you were at the park at 8 o'clock in the morning. Well, so then in 2000, then, so you're with uh, Albuquerque for the Dodgers. You manage them. And then uh, around that time, as you just mentioned, so you're in Puerto Rico a lot during that time in the winters and other places. And so you get, I believe you're still the, what, the only non-Latin individual to be inducted into the Association of Major League Legends in Latin America. You won three championships there. You managed six all-star games. What what did that mean to you? Well, that was, that was big because, uh, uh, you know, getting the opportunity in 88 to go in there, you know, just like a player, once players get put stats up at the double or triple A level, organizations want them to go to winter ball. Uh, they can be prepared for when the, when the crowd, you know, when you're in the minor leagues, every, everybody's supportive of you. But when you get to winter ball, they don't care what you've done lately. It's what are you doing right today? And uh, the, the mental pressure that you're under is great development for players to help them. As I mentioned, when they go into tough cities in the big leagues, like Philly, like Chicago, like New York. And in my case, uh, I had managed at every level from rookie league through AAA and had been fortunate enough to have a team that won a pennant at every level from rookie league to AAA. And when I was fortunate enough to be hired at Mayaguez, we ended up creating a we had a dynasty. I mean, we were we were actually voted by the media as the team of the decade for the '90s. And uh, you know, my first six years there, we went to the finals all six times. I managed in six All Star games, and we won three championships. And the the other two that we didn't win, we lost the final game uh, to keep us from. Well, we had an opportunity to win six in a row coming down to the last game. So, you know, I credit that to my players. Who were some of the guys you had on those teams? Well, my first year, my captain was a utility player with the Minnesota Twins named Al Newman. Yep. And the 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 key guys going into the season were Ricky Jordan and Ronnie Jones, mm-hmm. a first baseman and a, and a right fielder from the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, but the guy that turned out to be the star, and I was with the Detroit Tigers at the time, and a, a born clubhouse leader, and um, but Houston... To their credit, they knew what they had, and of course, the next year Ken was in the big leagues, and 
I don't know to this day why they traded him to the Padres, but of course his biggest years were at San Diego, including the being the National League MVP in '98 when the when they went to the World Series. And unfortunately, through uh, you know the use of drugs, Ken is no longer with us. He he died at 41, and that was that was tragic. But yeah, he he was the ultimate star of that club, and 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 and, and a big factor in carrying us to the Caribbean World Series. Well, so after that 2000 season with the Dodgers, so going back over here, um, October 18th of 2000, you get hired by the Royals as the bullpen coach for the 2001 season. So how did you get the job here in KC, and then what do you remember about the hiring process? Yeah, well, that was interesting because uh, Tony Muser Muser is like the brother that I never had. (laughs) Tony and I have... We ended up in our careers being in five different organizations together, starting at Baltimore, going to Milwaukee at virtually the same time together, Baltimore, Milwaukee, Chicago, Kansas City, and then ultimately after that, the, the San Diego Padres. So we, we're, we're almost like brothers, and we're the same age. Uh, Tony wanted to bring me with him right away as the, the major league hitting coach for the Royals, and as I told my dad, it was ironic that here I was trying for all my whole life to get to the big leagues, and then in one day I got offered two jobs at the same time to be the Royals hitting coach, and of course the Cubs wanted to promote me and make me the third base coach to succeed user. And um, you know, as I told Tony, you know, the exposure on TV being the third base coach for the Cubs in a major market which was a big factor in Tony getting the job at KC. I felt I was hoping would do the same thing for me. So I, I stayed with the, with the, uh, the, the Cubs, with, with Tony's blessing. And then when we all got fired, the Royals actually created a job for me in 2000 to get to know their farm system. I was going to be a roving instructor. And, um, you know, I told Allard Baird that I, I, that I would gladly take that. <laughs> in my drive between Chicago and California, out of the clear blue, the Dodgers called me and wanted me to manage their AAA team in Albuquerque. Oh. And so I, so I talked to both Allard and Tony because I didn't want to burn any bridges. I said, look, I, I'd love to come with you guys, but, but I would prefer to manage for a year and come when there's an opening. And, and Allard and Tony both gave me the blessing to do that, and uh, I was gifted with a great team in Albuquerque, uh, one of the best teams of my career. And we had a fabulous year, development-wise, winning-wise. And um, and then as soon as the season was over, there was an opening in Kansas City, and then I, that's when I joined the major league staff. Okay, so then, yeah, so you're a bullpen coach at first. Uh, so the first and, and third years you're in Kansas City, you did that. So a lot of people listening right now don't know exactly what a bullpen coach does. They know what the pitching coach kind of does, but uh, explain what are the role of a bullpen coach is. Okay, well, the, 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 the bullpen coach uh, works, works underneath and hand-in-hand with the pitching coach. I mean, he, he literally, it's just like the bench coach is the assistant to the manager, the bullpen coach is the assistant and right-hand guy to the pitching coach. Because obviously the pitching coach, and we went through several during my tenure at Kansas City. In yeah. fact, for a, mu- for a month of that year, I was the pitching coach. <laughs> um, you know, we started with Brent Strom, and then before Al Nipper came into the picture, was John Cumberland. So we, we kind of, 
you know, of course, those were losing days for Kansas City, and you know, when you lose, changes are going to be made. Um, but the but but the pitching coach obviously needs to be in the dugout so he can be the eyes of the pitcher during the game to talk to between innings about pitch sequences, about mechanics, reminding him who's coming up the next inning, who to pitch around, any and all of that. So the bullpen coach has been schooled as to who the probables are for that night, like directing a play. If everything goes perfect in my tenure there, if we we were to beat the Yankees 4-2 and we could script it out, the script might have called for Supon for six, Jason Grimsley to, to be the setup man and to go seven and eight, and Roberto Hernandez to come in and close it out in the ninth. That would be a perfectly directed script. So my point being to your fans that are listening, just to give them the inside dope on baseball, as the complexion of the game is going along, for a guy in the bullpen that there's two factors for him to come in to pitch. One is obviously physically throwing enough pitches to get himself loose. Part of my job in the bullpen, being so far away from the dugout and the pitching coach, was for me to be the one, as the complexion of the game developed, to let them know, even before the phone rang, mentally, whether it be Doug Henry or Grimsley, just giving them a heads up that, you know, hey, I'm not the manager, but I, but there's a good chance you could be involved in this to start getting the wheels turning. And that would get them more in tune into the game as to who's coming up, where are we at in the lineup, and so forth. And then, of uh, course, the full circle now that Doug Henry is the bullpen coach here. So, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of random. I, I can't say enough. You know, and there's another guy that, you know, baseball, you come for full circle. So I was with Doug in my Brewer days when he was a youngster, and then I was the bullpen coach when he was at the tail end of his career, and I told him, I said, you would be a perfect guy. I don't know what your plans are after post-baseball, but you would be a perfect guy with your temperament and your ability to articulate to give back to the game being a coach. And, uh, you know, so so there's, there's there's a perfect example of it. Now, unfortunately, in 02, you guys got off to an 8-15 and 15 start, and then Tony was obviously fired. I think, I think, if I remember right, it was in Detroit, and he got ejected or something, and they fired him after the game. But how tough on that? You know, how tough was that on you? Well, you know, it, you know, it's a part of the game. Uh, you know, when when I was a young scout with Baltimore, a, 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 a famous scout told me, he said, "If you're going to make this a career, I can make you two promises." One, you better have a great understanding wife or you'll end up divorced. Uh, my wife got fed up with it because baseball, if you have any kind of success at all, it takes you away from home a lot. Yeah. Instructional league, winter ball, you're just gone more and more. The second thing that he told me is I don't care how good you are or you think you are, you will be fired. And I've been fired four times in my career because it's much like these college football coaches. When a change is made, it's made from top to bottom, and the whole staff is cleaned out. So when we got off to the bad start in '02, I think I think even to himself, it was a re- relief. When you know that the end is in sight and you're in the guillotine, you know it, the waiting is almost worse than the reality of it happening. If you, if you know what I mean. Yeah. You know, and then and then of course it puts a lot of strain on all the coaches because then you're wondering who is in fact going to come in and take over, and and in my case it turned out to be 
a real blessing for me because Tony Pena and I, Tony was doing the same thing with the Aguilas Club in the Dominican. And uh, two years in a row, they beat us in the final game to win the Caribbean Series huh. with us, us finishing second to them. And then I got a little revenge on them in 2000 when I managed Albuquerque, as you mentioned, for the Dodgers. Tony was managing AAA for the Houston Astros in New Orleans. That's right. And uh, and when Tony took over the club, Tony's a great people person and a great motivator. And the first week he took over the club, he had a barbecue at his house on an off day and had all the coaches and their wives over. And uh, Tony's wife told me that, when unbeknownst to me until she told me the story that when she, when we managed against each other in New Orleans and Albuquerque, and because I'm bilingual in Spanish, and I told his wife, someday I'm going to manage in the big leagues, and that guy Gamboa is going to be on my staff. Huh. And boy, when I heard that, that made me feel real good because I felt the same way towards him. And, uh, you know, so we, we, had a, we had a good rapport. And, of course, at that time I was the first base coach base running and outfield, so I was more involved in the games and in the dugout than I was as the bullpen coach. I was liking that. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, then, so obviously something awful happens then. So September 19th of 2002, you're coaching first base in Chicago. You know, top of the ninth, you guys are winning 2-1. to one, You're hitting, and then a, a, you know, a father and son thought it would be a good idea to run in the field and attack you. So, I mean, can you still, 13 years later, vividly remember like the exact moment it happened? Oh, yeah. I mean, it like it, like it. Well, I'm fortunate that they have a photographic memory, so I, I remember everything whether I want to or not. Ugh. But I, I'd never be able to forget that day, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, so you know, what? It, it just hits you like a ton of bricks? I mean, were you just shocked? Well, it, 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 you know what? Uh, you, know, and, you know, sometimes reporters are, uh, you know, not so much anymore. Every once in a while something comes up like, you know, your call for this today. Of course, there was a lot at the time. But, you know, it was, as I've told everybody, it was an out-of-body experience because, you know, we were in last, the White Sox were in second to last. The game meant absolutely nothing in the standing. Yeah. It was a cold night in Chicago, September 19th. And in the ninth inning, the last thing I remembered is that Michael Tucker was hitting, and, be, and between pitches, I, I would have a habit of bending over like an outfielder and put my hands on my knees in the box. And all of a sudden, everything just went black. My head just torpedoed right into the ground with nothing to brace the fall. And I didn't know, I didn't know that I lost all my hearing, but, but I didn't know that. All I knew is that uh, when I came to, I was laying on my back, and two guys were swinging at me. And I could see the, the guy that turned out to be the dad, I could see his veins bulging. And his mouth moving, and I remembered in an instant wondering why nothing was coming out of his mouth. I didn't know that he was yelling and that, my, and that I was deaf, that I had lost that the shock of the impact of my head. Momentarily, I lost my hearing. And the, and the best thing that for me that happened, that they were so out of it that they were swinging and missing with all these so-called blows. But the dad finally hit me right in the jaw. I mean, and and when he when he, when I got hit in the jaw, that then it was not an out of body experience, and then survival kicked in, 
because then I remember in an instant thinking, I'm in trouble here. And I, I immediately was going to kick the guy that was right in front of me so that I could defend myself against the guy on the left that just hit me in the... And then I made a quarter turn to try to defend myself against the guy that just hit me, and then I got hit again. But I was so out of it, I didn't realize that it was all of our players from Kansas City. You know, I was at the bottom of the pile, but I didn't know I was at the bottom of the pile. I just knew that I was having a hard time breathing and that, and that I had a tremendous weight pushing me into the ground and bruises for months on my legs and my groin from our own players kicking me. <laughs> so it was wild. Man, wild. well, and I remember, yeah. I remember, uh, t- you know, Tony Gwynn defended you. I mean, I remember some people, there was some unfair speculation for like half a minute that you had said something or somehow ignited it, which obviously was not true. But I mean, how, how frustrating was that for you to have to even, you know, kind of clear name? I mean, you know, you did nothing wrong. How frustrating well, was that? Well, that, the truth, Dave, there was nothing frustrating at all about that. Because, really? see, I have prided myself, and this is my 42nd year of doing this now, and the one thing did I ever acknowledge the fans other than uh, to, to wave and to respond to kind things. In, in Chicago, you know, if I, if I made a poor decision at third base, when I was a third base coach of the Cubs, Sometimes they had a habit, whether it was me or Tony Muser or whoever, they would throw these little salad tomatoes at you. <laughs> and, 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 to, and Tony, in his tenure, would actually bark back at some of the people. You know, and, I, and, I, and, I, and as his, you know, quote, brother, unquote, I would say, Tony, don't let him get your goat like that. I mean, just don't even let him know that you acknowledge it. I can't control what the fans are. The, I have no doubt that at first the average fan, and I would probably be one of them, thinking, well, geez, they're not going to just run on the field and jump them. He had to do something. He must have, you know, when he went out there, he flipped them the finger or he, or, he, or, he, or something, because well, otherwise, why did they do it? And that was exactly my question when it went to court. Is, there, is that I, w- I was wondering, 750 people in the big leagues, players and coaches and managers, how, why me? Yeah. And the answer the dad had called his sister in the eighth inning and told her to turn the game on the TV because he was going to be on it the next inning. So it was a pre-planned thing. And as they told me in court, that when they came from the right field bleachers down behind first base, because the White Sox had sent their security home. I mean, you know, like I said, there was hardly anybody there by the end. And they said, you were the closest one to us. Your back was turned. So you were an easier target to get the attention that we were looking to get. So basically I was in the right place at doing my job at the wrong time. And then I think the, I think in lieu of 9-11 and just society in general, the fact that it was violence and sports combined made it way bigger than I ever realized that it was going to be in, ter- in terms of a media thing. You, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, th- because because I was naive enough, I was naive enough to think that it would be all that it would all be over the next day when we got back to 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 Kansas City. <laughs> and when our media guy came and got me after batting practice and said, "Hey, you you need to come to the media room," I was actually stupid enough to say, to ask him what for, <laughs> and he said, "He said, are are you are you kidding?" 
He said, we've, we've had to get a different room. we got like 300 people that are here. Oh, my gosh. And I was like, for what? <laughs> and he said, to talk about the incident from last night. That, that's how out of it, that's how out of touch I am with the media part of it. And when I walked into that room, but it was like they were afraid of wondering how I was going to respond to their questions. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know, totally. And so, so with my sense of humor... I got to the podium. I had to walk from the back of the room to the front, and I, I saw people that I had seen on TV. I mean, I'm talking, I'm talking about people flying in from other places, not <laughs> just the Kansas City media. So when I got to the podium, I just looked at everybody. There were no hands up. Like, there was tension. I just looked at everybody, and I said, well, I said, I guess I guess this is my 15 minutes of <laughs> And... Number one and number two, like I'm telling you, you know, when you bring up the incident, I respect that people have a job to do, and I and I and I did when I saw how many people were there. I made the connection between, okay, we've got 9/11. Now we're having sports violence. It's just kind of a reflection of what's going on in society, mm-hmm. and 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 I wanted to I wanted to remove the tension and let them ask whatever they wanted to because I I didn't do anything wrong, so I didn't have anything to feel guilty about other than just doing my job, yeah, you know. But, you know, the, the sad thing, you know, for and I'm not one to cry over spilled milk, but the sad thing, you know, I'll be known when I die for that incident, but I've had a lot of really good years in this game where I've worked my ass off yep. behind the scenes in the minor leagues to get to where I was at, and uh, and I don't fault anybody for it because, once again, I had no idea – that it wasn't going to go away, and and that's and that was too bad. Yeah, that was that's. It's funny you said that. That's the exact next question I had was, you know, how forty plus years in baseball, all this stuff, and it's like you're known for that. Like I, I, I was guessing you were probably kind of frustrated in in one regard about that at least, right? Well, you know, I, I, you know, I mean, we, we can't do it forever. I lived right down there by the mall in the heart. We used to go to Tom Fuleries when we would uh, at night. To, to you know have you know have a snack and have a couple beers and and and, and, and walk back to where I live uh, the, the ballpark for being built in 69 is as good as any of the new parks in the country today and and players will tell you that I mean they were ahead of its time in its construction and I loved everything about it and and I loved it we were losing I'd have loved it even more if we were well we did we did have a real good year. And in fact, the only good year until last year under Tony's leadership in uh, in 2003, mm-hmm. everybody was brought back except for me. You know, and you know, and I just quietly went away. But I knew, I knew what what brought it on. And, and, and I and I didn't and I didn't blame Mallard Baird, the GM, or Tony Pena. I had the ultimate respect for both guys. I'm still friends with both guys. But but at the big league level. It's all about the players. It's it's Mike Sweeney. It's Joe Randa. It's Carlos Beltran, and it's the manager. And that's the way that it should be, you know. But in my case, when we got that next night, and I'll forever be grateful to the people of Kansas City. But I was semi embarrassed that night, that one night of September twentieth, when I went out to coach first base. I could I could feel the crescendo building as though Mike Sweeney was coming up with the bases loaded and the chance to win the game. And I could see the camera well at first base. There must have been 30 
newspaper and and photographer people in that well. And when they announced Rich Dower, number 26 at third, and nothing happened, and then when they said, and coaching first base, number 21, Tom Gamboa, all the flash bulbs went off. It was the front page of the Kansas City Star, my mug tipping my hat. And, and, and believe me, I'm sincere in thanking the people of Kansas City, but at the same time, you can understand my embarrassment of the attention on me as a first base coach over no accomplishment of mine. And I know that they meant it well, that they were glad I was healthy and didn't miss the game. I, I, I get that. But from my end, it's like, really, I'm getting all this attention over, you know, I didn't hit a game-winning home run. I didn't do something to help us win. But yeah. here's, what, here's what your fans don't know. And this is that, and, and you know, some things in life are just meant to be. As we finished that year on the road, there was one le- week left, uh, uh, and we went to Cleveland and Detroit to finish our season. And once again, I was naive enough to think, okay, now it's over. But when we went to Cleveland and when we went to Detroit, you know, and I know the fans were meaning well, but it was drawing attention away from the team. I'm just a coach. You see my point? Yeah, yeah. That's... Okay, and, and now here's the, here's the coup de grace. Tell, tell me how bad my luck was going. The next, if you remember in 03, the Royals were like your team of last year. We started off like 20 and 3 under Pena's. We were the talk of baseball. And all 365 days in the calendar year, that day, the judge picked to sentence the guys. And so when we finished batting practice, our media, I saw while we were taking BP, like a hundred reporters and news people come running into the stands down by our dugout. And when BP was over with, I said, these people that are running in here, they're here to see me for what? (laughs) I said, our team is 20 and three. What do I have to do with this? And, well, because they just sentenced the two guys, they're, they're going to want your reaction to what happened. And, and boy, and rightfully so, Tony Pena snapped. Yeah, boy, he snapped at the wrong person. He snapped at me. He mm-hmm. took me in his office after I got done with the media. He watched from, from the dugout, and I, I answered all their questions. And then when we got inside, he slammed the door in his office and said, Camby, we're 20 and 3. And the focus is still on you. All the days in the in the calendar year that I had anything to do with scheduling the sentencing. <laughs> I mean, we could have been in Detroit, Cleveland, L.A. We, we should have been in any other city in the country. <laughs> but we happened to be in Chicago on the day that it happened. Gosh! And it was. And I, you know, I called my dad that night and I said, you know what, this thing is just never going to go away. And and to and to back up just a step. On the last day of the 2002 season, Tony brought me into his office and closed the door and let me know before the fact he's going to bring his own people in. You know, that's, that's part of the game. But I was the first to know, but here's the kicker, Dave. He said, the reason I'm telling you this, Gamby, is I know you won't say nothing till it's till we talk to the guys and release to the media, but he says, I know you're going right home today. And I want you to coach third base next year unless we can't find the hitting coach we want to get. Then I may ask you to do the hitting. Hmm. 
And I said, Tony, i do anything for you. So I assumed I'm going to be a third. And then Ellard Baird, not Tony, but Ellard Baird called me up and told me I was being rehired but sent back to the bullpen. And I'll give you three guesses why. They wanted to diffuse my visibility on the field because it was taking attention away from the team. But once again, Dave, if I was in their boats, I would have done the same thing. It would, it would just be perpetuated. And that was proved by what happened the last week of the season. You know, So I know that when Tony told Allard that he wanted me to be a third, I have no doubts that Allard said, Tony, this, this incident is never going to die unless we put him back in, let's put him back in the bullpen and defuse it. You know, so, you know, I don't have any animosity. I, I get it. I'm just saying that it's just unfortunate. It just is what it is. Well, last few questions for you. Now, go real quick back to 2003. Obviously, you mentioned the ridiculous start. It was, a, it was a great season. To me and to many Royals fans, one of the, you know, biggest memories of that year was Jose Lima pulling him out of the, you know, Atlantic League, and you guys hadn't seen him pitch in person that year to scout him, and they brought him in, and all of a sudden he turned into a world beater and reignited that team after you guys kind of slumped after that start. You know, talk about Lima time. What was he like? And obviously we lost him way too young also. In my tenure at Detroit, I was with Jose Lima the first year he signed at 17 in pro ball. He started in the Tiger system. And then when I was the third base coach at, with the Cubs, he was winning 20 games for the Houston Astros. Mm-hmm. And when Tony Pena brought him to camp, I kind of thought that it was wishful thinking on Tony's part. But boy, Tony Pena deserves all the credit for that. Because when he brought Lima in, Lima, Lima was a very passionate, adre- adrenaline junkie type of a guy that really knew how to pitch because he knew what what it was like when it was over, you know, when he had left Houston and wasn't in the big leagues. And he not only was he a factor in winning games for us when he was on the mound, but he became literally the 10th guy on days when he wasn't pitching in the dugout, being the first one to, to, to verbally get, get the guys up when we were down to start rallying to, to, do the funny thing with the rally caps, waving the towel, standing on the dugout, getting the fans behind it. Uh, you can't say enough good things about Jose. And and it was all legit. It's a real shame that he, he died at such a young age. That was very, very tragic because he was doing some good things in music once he got out of baseball. Yeah, I remember him singing the National Anthem and stuff too. Well, yeah. uh, last four things for you. So, I mean, have you been back to Kansas City ever since leaving? Uh, no, and you know, I, I always hoped that, that I would resurface in the big leagues, uh, as I did with the Royals going back to Chicago. You know, un- unfortunately, it didn't happen. But, but as I said before, I followed you guys every step of the way last year, uh, you know, not only because of their success, but when I managed AAA as an interim manager many, many years ago, Ned Yost was my catcher. Oh, um, in in Vancouver, when I was the hitting uh, minor league hitting instructor for the Milwaukee Brewers way back in '79, Ned Yost was a 21 year old catcher in his first year at AAA at Vancouver, and uh, I had to fill in for a week. I was all caught up in their success last year. Very 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 thrilling, even from the outside. How many more years do you think you'll keep managing for and, and staying in the game? 
Uh, that's a good question. You know, as long as it's as long as it's fun. I mean, you know, health is good. Uh, coming back with the Mets, I realized my passion is still there. Uh, but on the on the flip side, I I I, I do miss golf. The two years I was retired, I literally played golf every single day <laughs> and treated it like a job. I mean, you know, you just take it you know take it year by year. But you know, I still. You could probably tell in my voice I'm still as passionate as ever about about baseball, even teams I'm not with, like the Royals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When are you going to write a book, by the way? Well, that's what my kids want me to do. And uh, you need you to. Know, I, 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 I think I think it would be. There's so many people that love the inside and the clubhouse humor and things that they're never aware of. That sometimes I think that the best person that could write it would be a no-name person such as myself that is that has spent the bulk of my time in the minors because anybody that's spent a lifetime in this game could write a bestseller with, <laughs> this, with the stories you have in your head. Yeah, well, I definitely wouldn't call you a no-name, by the way, getting back to that statement. But uh, <laughs> And I guess the last thing I have for you, just in summary, what would you like to say to uh, to all the Royals fans listening right now? Oh, I, I, uh, after uh, gosh, 03, so it's been, what, 12 years since I left the town. Uh, well, number one, I'm very flattered to you, and I'm flattered for the opportunity, number one. And secondly, I would be remiss if I didn't tell your listeners to thank you for personally the way that I was treated all three of my years in Kansas City were spectacular. But as the fan base in general, even though we were a losing team in those years, the diehard support from the people and the press and the media, I thought was really a great indication of the of the the people of the heartland. I say hello and, and a heartfelt thanks to everybody, and I hope that I do get back to Kansas City uh, one day. And, and my last comment, Dave, if I may, probably the only benefit of me being attacked that I can think of is that the Royals have had this tradition on the day of the opener that they pick people that, and they really publicize it, go around to all the newspaper stands and, uh, and pass out newspapers yeah. to promote the opening of the season. And in 03, although I didn't deserve it as, as a no-name guy, I got to spend a full half day. Uh, the Kansas City Star asked Allard Baird for permission if I could be the guy with Buck O'Neill. And to listen to his stories and get a chance to spend a half a day with that man, who was about 90 at the time, was a, was a day that I'll never forget in my life. And that, that would have never happened without that incident coming. So God, God rest his soul. I'm glad I got to say that I got to spend a day, a day with that, that, that famous person. Absolutely. Well, you know, we're we're thankful that we had you here in Kansas City. You know, wish it would have been longer and you would have had some more, you know, postseason teams like last year. But hopefully uh, the Mets will continue to get good. Maybe we'll see a Royals-Mets World Series one of these days, and maybe we'll see you back in KC one of these days. Okay. Very, very good. And th- thanks again for having me, Dave. Okay. Take care. Have a great day. Okay. Bye-bye.